0: Robert Wilson sat down with moderator John Rockwell for a one-on-one interview in March of 1997. I'm Hal Prince, a member of the Society of Stage Directors and Choreographers, and this is Masters of the Stage, produced and presented by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation in collaboration with the American Theatre Wing.
1: I've been told that the conversation and the questions should focus on Bob as a director as opposed to the eight million other things he does. Uh, Although Bob, if you or I choose to mention some of them, we can, but um, I suppose an obvious first question is, you are now a term used by some, a theater artist, which obviously is centered around directing and designing, At what point in your evolving career did you decide to focus on being a director slash designer and why?
2: Well, I think uh, in 1971, after the Deaf Mind Glance was presented in Paris, um, I seriously considered whether to continue working in the theater. Prior to that time, I was thinking about other things. I had studied architecture, I had studied painting, um, and I wasn't sure exactly what I would do. And I had presented this work that was seven hours long and silent in Paris, and it was, much to my surprise, a big success. In <laughs> many people began to ask me to, to work in the theater. I was asked to direct an opera at La Scala. I was asked to go to the Berlin Opera. I was asked to work with various theaters in, in Europe. And Each time I declined thinking that I really didn't have the background or the experience uh, to, to do the work, to, to be a director, to direct works. Um, but I made a decision to continue with my own body of work and to direct that and uh, I did after that a, a play that was seven days long and silent um, in Persia and I made a 24 hour overture for it at the, at the opera Comique in Paris and once again much to my surprise there was interest by various people in Europe to support the work that I was doing, and um, it became a full-time occupation. It was the beginning.
1: Did you, at that time, how did you, if somebody said in 1972,
2: Bob, what do you do? What would you have said? I Probably would say I'm an artist, and I I think I would still say that. Uh, I don't separate so much between living and, and working. It's all a part of one thing. But I don't see so much difference in designing a chair or directing a play or uh, designing a building. Or it's all a part of one aesthetic. Marcel Breuer said, "In this chair that I've designed, you can see all my aesthetics. You can see the same aesthetics that go into (coughs) designing a building or a city. They're all inherent in this chair." And I think just in the same way, if I make a drawing or design a, a chair or direct a play, it's all a part of one kind of concern.
1: Yeah. In the earliest pieces you did, how would you describe your relationship with the onstage performers? in other words did you direct them in some kind of conventionally understood sense of that did you collaborate with them did you let them do what they wanted to do i mean how did that work in the earliest in the late 60s very early 70s well
2: i directed them in the way that i do now although it's grown and developed and what i do and is different i think than most stage directors that I know of um, is that I give a structure, I give a form, I give a stage setting, a place, I give a duration of time, and I try to work whether it's a professional performer. In the beginning, there were non professional people that performed in my work, and later years, I worked with professionals. <clears throat> Um, you try to find a situation where that person can be comfortable with himself in the context of this structure that I I set up. So, that's basically what I do. I talk a lot about um, movement, about the body, I think of uh, what Martha Graham said. She said, there's no such thing as no movement. There's always movement. And sometimes when we're very still, we're more aware of movement than when we make a lot of movement. I think of what John Cage said. He says, there's no such thing as silence. There's always sound. And sometimes when we're very quiet, we're more aware of sound than when we make a lot of sound. But there's always sound. And <clears throat> my early works, which were <coughs> silent, um, dealt a lot with stillness and <clears throat> a kind of awareness or concentration in maintaining a continuous line. And this continuous line is maintained by a sense of always being aware of the movement that's always there, and by listening for the entire body, not with just the ears, but with the body, to the sound that's always there. And with this awareness, one always can maintain one line when I first came to, to New York, I went to, the, um, to see the Broadway Theater, and I didn't like it. <laughs> and it's, it's okay. I still have my problems with it, but I guess I'm more tolerant now. But <clears throat> I went to the opera, and I didn't like that either. And I still don't, for the most part. But I saw the work of uh, George Balanchine, and I liked that very much. And I saw the work of Merce Cunningham, and I liked that very much. But I've always been orientated to dance and uh, I think at the beginning I was really thinking about movement and the way movement is structured in space Um, and about uh, the sounds and silence and the movement and stillness uh, something I still think about I go to <clears throat> the other night I was went to the theater. It was the same old problem. It's this. You know, Go to the theater tonight, you'll see this, I promise you. The <laughs> actor walks over and he stops. And he walks over again and he stops. He makes a gesture and he stops. And then he makes another gesture and he stops. No, 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 no. 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 No way. No, no, no. 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 <laughs> when you walk and you stop walking, the movement's still there. It never stops. Yeah. Last night I was, was last night or, <coughs> night before last, I was <clears throat> at a school here in the United States. And young acting students we all talk, da da de dum, de de dum, da de 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 dum, da da de 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 dum, da de 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 dum, da de 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 dum, da da de de dum. No. No! 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 No. No way. It's da de de dum. dum. That's a line. It continues. And uh, so, whether you're speaking or not speaking, it's one thing. Or whether you're moving or not moving, it's still one thing. That was, I think, one of the things I was concerned about in the early work. I never talk about content so much. I never talk about interpretation. Wow. I didn't in the beginning. I didn't. I didn't want to tell someone what to think or what to feel. But they have a form. They have a structure. And then they can fill in this form in whatever way they want. Like an architect um, makes a megastructure. He designs a building, and you can buy an apartment in the building and decorate it the way you want. But the building has an overall organization. Or a city It has a plan. And you can build various buildings of different sizes, different colors, different shapes. But it has an overall plan. And I see that's my job as a director. It's been from the beginning to now is more and making an overall mega structure, And then people within the structure can bring to it whatever they want. I, I'm against any interpretation in the theater. I think that uh, interpretation uh, limits <clears throat> our experience. And... Uh, I've never been. I'm against a psycholo- psychological theater. I'm against naturalistic theater. I hate naturalism. I think to to be on stage and be natural is uh, not possible. It's uh, and if you think you're being natural, it's a, it's a lie. And most of what I see on stage, I think is based on a lie. Uh, to be on stage is something that's artificial. And if we accept it as being artificial, we can be more honest about what it is we're doing. And in a strange sense, it becomes more natural. I see the no theater, which is totally artificial. The way they walk, the way they sit, the way they speak, or whatever. <laughs> the costumes, the stage set. It's, it's all something artificial. And yet, for me... When I see it, I find that it's closer to nature than when I see Tennessee Williams or Edward Albee.
1: Did, um, over the years, and you mentioned the various long pieces that you did at the beginning that were all in silence. More recently, you have introduced greater amounts of text into your work and, of course, starting in, what, 79, started directing plays and operas not by yourself, has the introduction of these, if you wish, alien structures altered your work in any way?
2: I think it has, but it's still a part of the same body. I think that an artist's entire work is one thing. A reporter asked Albert Einstein once, Mr. Einstein, can you repeat what you just said? He said, there's no need for me to repeat what I just said because it's all the same thought. Proust said he was always writing the same novel, and Cézanne said he was always painting the same still life. It's one kind of thing. But of course it's different. In the beginning I had works that were silent, no text. Then I had texts that were nonsense. A text of Christopher Knowles wrote. Hap, hat up, hat, hap, hat, hat up, hat, hap, hat, hat up, hat, hap, hat, hap, hap, up, bar up, par up, bar up, hat, hat. Hat, 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 arch, 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 arch. Things like that. Uh, Are, have you been here before? No. This is the first time. Have you been here before? No. This is the first time. Have you been here before? No. This is the first time. Have you been here before? No. This is the first time. (laughs) So those texts were. Very different than a text, uh, say, of Euripides, which I did later, and text of Heiner Muller, and then most recently, uh, say, Hamlet, how all occasions do inform against me and spur my dull revenge. Examples gross this earth exhort me, witnesses this army of such mass in charge. That's very different than per up, per up, up, So the early texts, which were sort of like a concrete poetry, <coughs> Or more like the weather or atmosphere in the room. Or, you, know, you had to deliver them with a kind of transparency that there weren't texts you wanted to think about so much. They're the sounds that you listen to, constructions of sounds with words, and uh, they were difficult to do because most people want to make sense when you speak words, and. Uh, to speak nonsense you have to do it in a kind of way so people don't get confused or try to make sense out of it and then having a text say of Euripides or heine Müller or Shakespeare it is making a kind of sense that are ideas that we want to think about so that uh, I don't think I could have done any of it, it, or it wouldn't have been the same if I had studied theater, if I had gone to school, which I I never did study theater, um, or if I hadn't have done the, the silent works first. I think it really came from listening.
1: If there is an overall form or variety of forms that define a given work. And if this form in part serves as a function of allowing the actor to invest within the form what other directors might try to elicit through psychological means or Mm -hmm. whatever. But if the design elements of the piece, which are always obviously very determinate in your work, are also part of a form, where does the humanity of the actor fit into the various formal design elements? (coughs) Or does the actor run the risk of being reduced or marginalized into a design element? Mm.
2: Uh, Yes, he does run that risk, of course. Um, And quite often the work becomes too mechanical or too flat um, are mechanical in the wrong way. I think actually to be mechanical is ideal. Uh, we're only free when we're totally mechanical. Uh, freedom comes in being mechanical. The first time you learn to ru- you start to ride a bicycle, it's complicated. and after a while you can ride it without thinking about it. It happens automatically. So I think that the more one does something, the freer one becomes. You never completely learn anything. You can start when you're two years old playing Mozart, and you can be 82 and you're still playing Mozart, and you have a different kind of freedom, but you never completely learn how to play uh, the Mozart. But what I do is, when it works best, I think, is that it gives a different kind of freedom than, say, a director who is telling an actor what to think. Uh, Because you have this form, and then within it, you can fill in the emotion. I don't talk about emotion. Or how to fill it in with emotion. I, I maybe talk about formal aspects. Could this be more interior? Could this be quieter? Could this be quicker? Could this be slower? But the actor who fills in the form can fill it in with whatever emotions or idea he has. Um... I might say to an actor, uh, be careful. (laughs) Careful. That you don't impose your ideas too much on the public. You you can indicate them, suggest them, but don't insist too much. And I find that most theater, for my taste, is insisting too much on, on one view. And it's... Uh, I prefer... That's why I were, was attracted to the work of, say, of Balanchine. There was a kind of mental freedom, uh, a mental landscape that he created that uh, there was so much space for me to think and have my own ideas and my own feelings. And I think that that's... What I strive to do is that as performers on stage, they have their own emotions, their own ideas, but they, and it can be different from mine as a director or as an author, but they should be respectful for the public, let the public have their ideas and feelings too. And uh, they can guide and suggest a, a direction, but they don't uh, say, hey, you have to think this way.
1: My own experience of Bob's work, which is extensive, has led me to the conclusion that, I suppose you could argue there have been exceptions, but almost invariably the stronger the actor, and by actor I mean both dramatic actor and operatic actor, the more successfully it works within Bob's forms. In other words, it's not a a situation where the form squelches individuality and therefore the automatons do the best work, but mm. quite the reverse, that the the great ones get it and work within the forms but then invest those forms with the kind of life that works best within the forms. I mean, has that been your experience? I mean, there's been an extraordinary number of sort of star-level people that you've worked with, uh, from dancers
2: to actors to singers, and have you found that, well, my little theory, to be correct or not? I think so. I think that... Uh Usually, when someone's great, there's a reason why they're great. And uh, I mean, if you're a great performer, whether you're a naturalistic performer or a psychological performer or whatever, it doesn't really matter. If you're great, you're great. <laughs> and uh, usually, that uh, people that are more successful have a, a kind of <clears throat> knowledge of of, of their of who they are and what they can do. And uh, They can bring to the work uh, a lot, and it's it's <clears throat> less work on my part
1: one of the things that I was fascinated to be about your methodology i don 't know whether you've consistently done this or have just occasionally done this or something, but in some of the productions that i've sort of been around, for example the Hamburg Parsifal and so forth um, Bob made videos of himself miming most, if not all, of the action of all of the principal characters. Mm -hmm. And then the actors would take the videos home and sort of look at them and either imitate them poorly or imitate them brilliantly or reinvent them. Mm
2: -hmm. I mean, can you describe how that process works and whether you still do that? I do it. I do it all the time. Uh, It doesn't... I have various techniques, but um, let see, what, I trying to, what did I do recently? I, did, uh, I, just, I directed uh, Peleus at the uh, Paris Opera in Debussy. So the way that's done is um, I had a workshop about a year, year and a half prior to the uh, opening. And I worked with young people More and more I work with students, and from at least about a a quarter or a third of the year I spend working with uh, students, young people all over. So I had a group of young people in Paris, Um, young singers, dancers, actors, and I took a recording of Peleus, and I did all the movements, and in this case I did them all myself. So I would play a recording and I'd get up and (laughs) do the gestures or movements. Well, maybe not. In some cases I didn't. Sometimes I just looked at the actor and I said, can you take your hand um, to your left eye? Can you take it to your right eye? Can you turn your head slightly to the left? Can you look (coughs) up a little more to the right, a little higher? Can you take your left hand to your left knee, don't touch can you close your fist quick make a fist quickly can you open your hand times ten look down drop your left hand things like that and um, often I would do something like that, say, without listening to music. So then I said, okay, now what did I do? And then I have, it's on videotape. And I have an assistant, and they've made notes. So we go back and we play back. So we say, okay, those were, that was a series of 11 movements. Whatever. So I give them numbers. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. So let's do it now. Do movement 1. Do movement 2. Do movement three, do movement four, do movement five, do movement one, do movement two, do movement three, do movement two, do th- three, two, three, two, three, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, ten, nine. Now, let's learn that. So we learn it. So it has a kind of rhythm and a structure. Then I play the music of Debussy and I go, okay, movement one, go, two, three, four, five. And I I call the numbers or the sequence listening to the music. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And eventually I arrive at a kind of uh, vocabulary, uh, a choreography, a set of movements. Um, And either whether I'm directing someone else or I've done them myself. um, That is all put into a book and then, a year later, I meet the singers. So I have Jose Van Damme singing. So I say, uh, I know this is unusual for you, and you've never done this before, but I have a, a vocabulary, a, a kind of choreography for you for this opera. And uh, He was it, singing Golo. Yes, it was. It was wonderful, fantastic, one of the best I ever worked with. Brilliant, and I said uh, you don't have to do these movements, and if they are uncomfortable for you, uh, we'll find others. But it's a starting point; it's a kind of frame. And in this case, he there's no problem. He would do whatever. and then I look at it, and then you see, well, okay, this doesn't work on his body. It looked good on the young kid who did it a year and a half ago. <laughs>
1: uh,
2: so you change it. But it's my work is a kind of it's like learning a Giselle or Swan Lake or something. It's a it's a formal approach. And uh, so
1: you've indicated in depth a little explanation to some extent how your sort of staggered workshop system works but could you (coughs) go into it a little more detail both in terms of the evolution of a new piece I mean how many workshops how far apart leading to what etc and then also given the prolific nature of your work how they overlap and whether that ever gets confusing in your mind that you're doing a workshop for one piece, and then a workshop for another piece, and then a second stage workshop for yet a third piece, and, you know, it all sort of sorts itself out.
2: Well, I work on many things at one time, and it's confusing for most people, and especially those who are immediately around me. It's uh, many things going on at one time, and I've always been that way. When I was about 10 years old, my mother was talking on a telephone, and a friend of hers said, what is Bob doing? She said, I don't know what he's doing, but he's got a lot of projects.
1: <laughs>
2: I was 13 years old, and my father said, son, you're doing too many things at one time. This is not going to work. You just should focus on one thing and do that one thing well. <laughs> so, anyway, <I've
0: laughs>
2: my nature is to work on many things at the same time. And the way I do it is that I work on projects over a long period of time. Uh, John and I are working on a project that we do in 1999, and we started a workshop for it last summer.
1: But with a lot of preliminary work before that.
2: With a lot of preliminary work before that. And uh, I got a kind of structure and a form and better idea of content. Uh, I'm going to do another workshop for it this summer, which I'm going to do staging with students. Uh, it will, will not be staged with the people, ultimately, who are going to perform the work, but to get a sense of what the movement will be like. As of now, I still don't have a text. Um, I will then do another workshop for it in uh, 98. That will probably be in Berlin the shop unit, Um to develop the work further, It'll probably be even another workshop in the summer of 98. It was maybe students again. And eventually a final uh, rehearsal period. But this is a creation, so it takes usually three or four years to for me to create a work. I don't write in a room alone. I'm not a kind of writer or author who can... Go to a room and work alone. I work in a room with people the way a choreographer would work. Um, I go Monday to audition singers for a new opera that Phil Glass and I are doing called The White Raven. And it opens uh, an expo in 98 in Lisbon. And the way that work was written is, um, well, we started for, oh, five years Eight this is a years. A
1: particularly ago. long, a boring one.
2: Yeah, this is eight years ago. I did a workshop the piece. First Phil and I met and we made a a kind of structure. Something like this. One, two, three, four, five. One and four, two and five. This is a scherzo. That's how I I, I start with a form. That's how I write a work. So he said, okay, how long should it be? It should be two and a half hours. So I know how how long it's going to be. Um, Then I know the first part is going to relate to to the fourth, and the second is going to relate to the fifth, and the third part is going to be a scherzo. It's going to be different. So let's say this is eight minutes long. And these are longer. I know this is going to be shorter and different in time. Um, Then I did a staging for the work. I have no text. I have no music. I staged the entire work, the opera. <laughs> and I <clears throat> made drawings. I said, okay, there's going to, it's going to begin in the uh, end of the 15th century. It's in a, a courtroom. It's going to have arches in this courtroom. And there's going to be a king. And there's going to be a cardinal. And there are going to be these various people and they're in this courtroom at the end of the uh, <clears throat> 15th century. Um, and I stage it with students in the same way, take your left hand here right hand there, walk here keep your weight here keep the line continuous, don't drop the line keep the tension whatever, and that's videotape then this, these drawings what the various sets are like and the movements are given to an author and they looked at the, the movements and they wrote a text And then Phil took the videotape and took the text and wrote the music. So he knew how long a scene would be because he knew how long it was going to take the king to walk center stage. And um, we started with movement first. Some anthropologists believe the man was moving before he was speaking. And from movement came sounds and eventually connected with Thoughts and language was formed. I don't
1: but since The White Raven was part of a two-part work, what's the other one called, Palace of the Arabian Nights? Palace or? of the Arabian Nights. Did, just didn't surely you and Phil at some point sat down and say, "Okay, we're doing a two-part opera; each part is independent." And the, did you have some sense of the basic storyline or what's going to go on or what's going to well,
2: happen? We, we first started with the Palace of the Arabian Nights. We thought to. Um, trace the Islamic movement from the 9th century to today. Or actually then, we said, well, maybe we should stop with the 15th century. And we would stop in Spain or Portugal where the Islamic movement
1: crested in that
2: way. Yes, crested. And then we were asked to do a work uh, to celebra- In celebration of the Portuguese explorers. So then it, it seemed interesting that we would start where we left off, that we would start with the Portuguese explorers, Vasco da Gama, going to the Far East and eventually to South and North America, to the Americas. And then it, we said, okay, let's make a diptych. And it would be a continuation of a kind of story, a historical story, in our way. But, uh, have different, I just came from a meeting with Phil now about at work, but I can't remember the structure, but Einstein on the beach was this, one, two, three, this is just how we made it. So we said, okay, let's make it in four acts. Let's call it Einstein on the beach, EOB. <laughs> <clears throat> okay, Phil, how long do you want it? How long should this be? I don't know. Be Wagnerian? Yeah. Why not? Okay. Four hours and forty-eight minutes. That's <laughs> true. So, this is, true. Not, this is, <laughs> this is first, these are the first things we did. So we said, okay, A, B, C, A, B, C, A, B, C. It'll have this structure. It's all the possible combinations you can have of A, B, and C together. A and B, C and A, B and C, A, B, C together. We'll have one, two, three, four, five. Five interlude scenes. One, two, can you see? Three, four, five. I call them knee plays, like a leg. You have a knee that links two similar elements. So now let's put times. four, four, five, four, four four, five. Four, four minutes. Twenty-four, twenty-three, twenty-two. 23, 24, 22, 18, 16, 17. Those are the times. So now I know I have one A is going to be 24 minutes. What's it going to look like? Well, it's going to be a train that's going to cross the field. It's going to be an act of passage. Things are going to be passing in the space. The second one's going to be a courtroom, a trial. This is an act of collection. People are going to collect in the space. Oh, whatever. It's a courtroom. So then I knew the stage settings. Based on this, Phil wrote music. So he knew he had act one, scene A. He introduced a musical theme in 1A that later became a, it was a minor theme here that later became a major musical theme in 4C. Visual book, I introduced a visual theme in the third knee play that became a major visual theme in 4C. It was the 4C was an interior of a spaceship with lights moving and flashing in the interior control room of a spaceship. And in the third knee play, there was a little room here with these lights moving in the same patterns. But in this space, in the knee play, was dark because I'd already introduced it here. Here was three minutes, uh, five minutes was this visual theme, and later here was 17 minutes, a major visual theme. So Phil filled in this outline in a different way than I did in the structure of the music. We were working from the same structure, and I did it visually, and he did it audibly. So in that sense, as an author, as a stage director, my work is somewhat different in that one of my problems with uh, what has happened in our Western theater and its result of playwrights and stage directors is that I think we haven't adequately developed a visual book for theater. You think of a play or Shakespeare or Moliere or Edward Albee or Tennessee Williams, Racine, Kleist, whomever Western playwrights is is a man who wrote text. Um, And I'm more attracted to Eastern theater or say the theater of Africa or even Latin America Africa, where the visual book is also learned and is also a part of the totality of the vocabulary, the language of of the stage. If you uh, are no actor in the classical theater in Japan, you spend as much time learning how to walk How to stand, how to sit, as you spend, and how to make a sound. It's incredible to me. It's unbelievable to me. In almost all of our schools, there's almost no exception, in this country and in Europe, that no time is spent with a body. In terms of learning a physical technique, if I ask a graduating student from Northwestern, from Yale, from Juilliard, to walk across the stage, it's unbelievable what you'll see. It's unbelievable. They can't do it. <laughs> yeah. Can you sit in a chair? That's what you'll say, I promise you. Can you stand? No. 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 No way. No. Mm. You have to learn to walk. And you have to learn to stand. And you have to learn to stand on a stage. To stand on a stage is not like standing on the street. It's not like sitting at home watching TV. It's a stage. The stage is different. The space is different. The light's different. The air is different. Everything about it is different. And you have to learn that. And to me, it doesn't have anything to do with acting in a psychological way or... It has to do with learning technique. Marlena Dietrich, I, I love Marlena Dietrich. I'm a big fan of hers. And I went 17 times to see her in Paris perform. Every night I would go. And she said, problem with these young kids, they don't know how to stand right, I and mean, the lady could stand on a stage you have to learn it the Japanese believe the gods are there but anyway um, I don't know how I got off of
1: that there <laughs> <laughs> you was know, a footnote to that, I was sitting next to Bob once during a rehearsal of Parsifal in Hamburg and there were two women playing you know Knights of the Grail sort of Apprentice Knights of the Grail and they were both standing there in a similar position. And to me, one of them looked good and one of them didn't look so good. And I can't remember what Bob said <coughs> about the one who looked good. And this was to me, not to the poor actress. But, <laughs> but about the one who didn't look so good, he said, look at her. She looks like she's waiting for a bus. <laughs> That's and, true. You
2: know. it's, I went in 1973 or 4. I was in Paris and I was performing at work and at 9 o'clock and a friend of mine wanted me to um, go to see a, a singer at 6 o'clock in the evening. I said, no, I can't. I have a performance at 9. It's possible. I said, but you really must go because she's great and you're going to like her. I said, no, no. Something. Must go. I said, okay, I'll go. So I went. And there were five singers sitting on stage. And there, Four of them. But one was sitting something like that. And then this one stood. It was so beautiful. Wow! the <laughs> lady can sit in a chair. She can stand. It's unbelievable. The others looked like they were waiting for a bus. But she didn't. It was Jesse Norman. I have a a knowledge of your body, you know, the weight of your body. Mm -hmm.
1: Given what you've done of the various kinds of things you've done over your career as an artist, which also includes the furniture design and installations and sculptures and choreography and so forth, besides all the obvious work in the theater. And given, I'm sure there'll be dramaturgs out here who challenge me on this, but given the relatively late evolution of the role of the all-powerful director in the history of Western theater, are you suggesting that it would be more salutary for directors today to involve themselves with more or all aspects of the theater and that there's been an excessive division of labor between actors, directors, designers, composers, choreographers, lighters, lighting people, etc., etc., or not?
2: Well, I think it depends on the individual, and I think that there's no rule that works for everyone, but generally speaking, I think it's better if you want to be a stage director or if you want to be an actor, if you want to be a lighting designer, that you know a little bit about all aspects of theater. Uh, so I think if you are a director and you've had the experience of performing, you have a different understanding of what it is when you're directing. Um, and it goes for everything, from designing a costume or lighting. or And I think that it's can be a problem when it gets too departmentalized and one only becomes specialized in this one area. But, I don't know, I've worked with people who only know their one area and then they do that very well and it works as a part of a team. But generally speaking, I think it, it's helpful to be knowledgeable about everything. Selling tickets, box office, producing plays, uh, whatever. Study architecture.
1: You know, in terms of direct questions about how you work with actors and so forth, this is slightly off the rails, but given your wide experience around the world, but especially in Europe as well as in America, and given the fact that your first recognition and still most steady work comes from Europe, is there anything you can say to this audience about... uh, problems, but maybe also advantages, but disadvantages, advantages and disadvantages of the American system of putting on plays as opposed to European.
2: Well, (coughs) I think (coughs) to some extent we're cut off in the United States. We live in this vast country that has never been invaded Gaddafi would drop a bomb in the middle of Manhattan we might know where he lives but we invade Grenada or whatever Grenada could be Greenland we don't know where Grenada is Um, we in terms of our government support uh, and through our outlook for the arts especially in the theater I think there are of course exceptions are quite natural, nationalistic. And you know, we think about ourselves first. And um, I think therefore we, we're limited. If we look even in this state of New York, if we look at the uh, New York State Council on the Arts and the monies that are available for the arts organization and the philosophy if we look at the National Endowment for the Arts and the philosophy, to me it's, it's somewhat unsound. And I think of something that Andre Malraux said, as the Minister of Culture in France. He said that he hoped to see as a cultural policy in France the following, to maintain a balance of interest in protecting the art of the past, with a balance of interest in protecting art of our time, creation. And on the other side of the coin, to maintain a balance of interest in protecting the art of our community, New York City, New York State, the United States, with a balance of interest in protecting art of all communities, China, Africa, the Eskimos, the jungle in Brazil, wherever. And <clears throat> that's only to be healthy. It seems that with our State Council on the Arts here in New York or the National Endowment of the Arts, even if we only have one dollar they can spend, that if we could spend it with this kind of philosophy, having the possibility of supporting an artist in some remote place in Africa, that we can support creation, take the risk to support something new, protect the past, and support the people of our community, that it's healthy. And this kind of philosophy is more prevalent in Europe than it is in the United States, and therefore I think people are better informed We'll never know where artists are going to appear. We don't I don't think understand the creative process. So it can happen in a rich country, rich country, a poor country, or an oppressed country, a free country. It can happen anywhere. We all know. I mean, you see a family of five children, why is one child an artist and the other four not? I don't know. They go to the same school, same parents? It just happens. I think the situation is getting better in the United States. I think what John is doing with the festival at Lincoln Center is certainly the step in the right direction. Uh, we are now being introduced to arts, artists uh, that are international. He's taking risks to present new work, traditional work. Through festival structures we can do it, but I think it needs to come f- from a doctrine, and I think it has to be in the government, myself. The way we have a, a constitution, a bill of rights, or whatever, they're, they're very sound Documents that we govern ourselves by. But we don't have it in the arts. And I think that whether it's going to happen through the individuals making the decisions or corporations or foundations or through the government, we need a kind of philosophy, similar to what Melrose said, to be well-informed. So it's been easier for me to work in Europe, I think, because of this philosophy. Einstein on the Beach was a commission by Michel Gui, who was the Minister of Culture in France, imagining, imagine the the American government commissioning two Frenchmen to write an opera. (laughs) Wouldn't happen, no? Now, it might happen through John and the the festival now, but John's a unique individual. And it's not the government. It's not the government, but if we had somewhere the inspiration or the constitution that we were all working from, so if I'm Pepsi Cola and I'm gonna have to fund the arts, I said, well, here's a kind of doctrine. Let's go take a risk. Let's give this young kid some money to, to do this. You know, he's really interesting and he's in um, Indonesia. Or whatever. We, we have the possibility of doing it.
1: I agree with all of that, but I asked the following question. You said that the process of creation was mysterious and one of five kids can be an artist and all that. <coughs> Nonetheless with all the deep flaws in the American system, uh, and in theater with the failure to sustain a really viable series of ensemble companies that present the classics and operates to quite the reverse, all you have is ensemble companies that present the classics. But nonetheless, how does this, these obvious flaws compared to the European system explain the absolute proliferation in the last generation of a large number of brilliant and talented American theater artists? I don't know, I, I don't think
2: you can. I mean, look at the, what, in the Netherlands and Dutch. I mean, they've been very supportive to contemporary music, to contemporary dance, contemporary theater, to painting. Uh, they haven't really produced any major artists, but they've supported it. Um, sometimes when you are supporting, you, you.
1: I don't know. The the Mar-
2: yeah, the Americans bought the French impressionists. The French had them buy them back from the Americans. The Europeans are buying the American artists. Somehow, the Americans will have to go back and buy them from the Europeans. But I don't know. Um, I, don't th- I, I think there's no explanation why does something happen in a certain time, a certain moment. I, maybe there are reasons, but it's how, how does m- someone get an idea? I don't know.
1: Let me ask one final question and we'll turn it over to the I don't audience. think
2: you can teach anything. <laughs> I think you can learn skills.
1: Right.
2: But But uh, to teach creativity, I'm not sure. I think you can. Gertrude Stein said an artist needs only three things. Mm-hmm. Only three. First, you need encouragement. Secondly, you need encouragement. And thirdly, you need encouragement. <laughs> I think that's, that's pretty good. You can encourage people.
1: Bob, my last question for you before we turn it over to these (coughs) folks is, I mean, what role does, Bob has something out in Long Island called the Watermill Center, which is a functioning organization, especially in the summers, but is still fundraising and growing and finalizing itself. But what role do you see the Watermill Center, besides the specific creation of your own work, in this larger question of reorienting the American sensibility, maybe?
2: Well... As I said, I, th- I don't think you can teach anything. I'm not, how does someone get an idea or creativity? But I think it's a place where, it's a center where young people can be encouraged to do work, where new ideas can happen. Um, it can be a kind of free school. Just as there's no one way to learn. Some people learn best through a structured environment, and some people learn best through an unstructured environment. There's no way. But most of our institutions here are very structured. So at this center, one can start a project. I did a a play a few years ago. There was a 10-year-old boy from Paris. There was a young actor from East Berlin. There was a dancer from Greece and myself. So we decided to do something, the four of us. And we didn't know what. Is it going to be a building? Is it going to be a book? Is it going to be a garden? Is it going to be a dance? Is it going to be an opera? What is it going to be? We start with a blank book. So the young actor from... East Berlin said, well, I've been reading this text uh, Dostoevsky, and he told us the story of the meat girl. And uh, so we made some movements based on this story. And we thought it was going to be a dance in the beginning. And then we put a text with the movements and became a play and we toured in Europe. But one can start with a blank book and it's difficult to do that if I go to, say, um, the Opera pastille and say, "Hey, I want to do something." You know, I start with a blank book. <laughs>
0: you
2: know, it's not a, it's not a kind of center where you go with a textbook where all the pages are filled in. You can fill in the pages yourself, or in some cases, you start with a book that's already filled in, and you figure out what to do with that. Um, it's a center where my early work, my first play, was written with a 13-year-old deaf mute child who'd never been to school. He knew no words. And The Deaf Man glance. it was the first work of mine to gain international attention. The beginning of my <coughs> career was written in collaboration with this 13-year-old child. Uh, who was go- about to be institutionalized, locked up in the United States, as someone who was uneducatable. My first play with words was written with a 13 year old autistic child who was in an institution in Schenectady, New York, the Odo Heck School. He's the one that wrote Hap, hat-up, hat-up, hat-up. hap, 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 her Up, Arch, 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 Hat, Up, Hat. This kind of behavior was uh, being corrected, was being stopped, it was locked up in an institution. And I put it on stage, and we toured all over the world. We uh, won the first prize in France from the French critic the year for the best play of the year. So at this center, there can be the participation of individuals who normally wouldn't fit in in society and, and other institutions. Yeah.
1: All right. I, we were told to wrap the whole thing up around 6.30, which doesn't leave a heck of a lot of time, but uh, it's hard to see because of the lights, but who has questions? Yeah.
2: Bob, uh, having had the opportunity to spend a month with you in Hamburg working on the time After to the Drama Leagues Special Interest Residency, um What I was most struck by your process in rehearsal then Mm -hmm. was your layering of each of the elements of the show and that each layer had its own vocabulary, Mm -hmm. the lighting, the decor, the movement, Mm -hmm. the actors, and the text. And one of the things I remember most was when you said, it doesn't matter if they all come together. It's Mm -hmm. most interesting when they don't, and Mm -hmm. they're counterpointing each other. Can you explain a little bit more about how... Well, I think that, as I said earlier, that our dilemma, which is probably gonna upset some people, but for me, our dilemma is that our theater has been bound by literature. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not against words. I'm not against literature. But I think it's been bound by literature. So, what does the director do? He reads the text, he figures out the movements, right? And what are the movements? An illustration of the text. What does the scenic designer do? He decorates the text with a set, right? They even call it stage decoration. I hate that word, decoration. It should be stage architecture. What does the light person do? Well, three weeks before play, you know, they get in there and they start writing some cues to to light the, the play. But Einstein on the beach here you have this train this, goes this, across this, this, the stage there's more
1: paper under there
2: there's a bar of light that comes down the train goes off across uh, leaves the stage second act begins with a horizontal bar of light time is a line that goes to the center of the earth and to the heavens it's vertical for me the space is it's the meeting of time and space this cross, it's the architecture of everything that's how you stand on the floor this awareness of time and space here it's how you play Mozart on a piano but anyway this is a light it ends with the second uh, scene with a second bar of light the edge of a bed that's lit this B here, 4B that's 16 minutes long 16 minutes it's just a bar of light no one on stage. The bar of light horizontal, diagonal, then vertical. Bringing that back together these themes that are originally introduced here. Light and this opera it's like an actor. We don't do it three weeks before we open. It's written from the beginning. It's structural. It's architectural. It's not decoration. It's, it's part of the book. The movement's being made separately for Palias are not a kind of decoration for the <clears throat> for the opera. They are movements on their own. I can say,
0: I want to kill you
2: Or I can say I want to kill you. And maybe this smile is more terrifying than than that. So in this theater I make what I see is what I see and what I hear is what I hear. And what I see may be different from what I hear, but it can reinforce. They can reinforce one another without having to illustrate or decorate. And so there is a kind of layering that the lights can have their own rhythm the movements can have their rhythm, the music can have a rhythm, and the text can have a rhythm. And sometimes they can illustrate one another, but not all the time. So it is like grids running in opposite direction, layers of stratified zones of grids running in different lines, and sometimes they line up. And in my work, those times they line up, it's they're very few. So at those moments when they do follow one another, become very important.
1: Another question? Yeah.
0: Yeah, I've been fascinated by what you said and also fascinated by seeing the production. One thing that I've been trying kind to of grapple is you talked today about uh, one thing and, and I think I read somewhere that you were interviewed and you said theater should be about
2: one thing. One thing first. One thing.
0: How do you, as as an artist, do one thing without interpreting
2: it? Well, I think abstractly. And that's different than most of the training for theater, especially in Europe. I work a lot in Europe, especially in Germany. I mean, to ask an actor in Germany to think abstractly about something is... they think that they're neglecting their intellectual responsibility. You know, it's not a, they, they, they can't. They don't think abstractly. I mean, if you look at a 14th century no-play, it can be based on a poem, a story, and this play will just stop, and you can have a 30-minute section that is something totally abstract. It has nothing to do with a play. Just something on its own. Imagine doing that in Shakespeare. But when I did Shakespeare, if I did Hamlet, I did this. Let's see if I can remember.
1: More paper.
2: So I thought of this. Did any of you see Hamlet? Okay. So Hamlet. So I I started seconds before he died. Had I but time. Had I but time. Had I but time. Oh, I could tell you. Let it be, wretched queen. Adieu. It was the just the seconds before he died. And then. <coughs> I came back to the end at the end. So it was a kind of arch. And then I had two big columns. And this was A, B, C, D. A, B, C, D. And these two columns held up this arch. And this was Ophelia. And this is Gertrude. These two women in his life. And the movements for A, B, C, D, Ophelia were always... A was the same as B, B, the same as C, D. But the way I rendered the text was very different, and the text was different. And with A, B, C, D, for the mother scene, the movements were always the same, walking on this diagonal line, going in a circle, coming back, whatever. But I did them all very differently, and the text was different. But I knew that I wanted to build to this point, come out of this point, build at this point and come back to this and this was going to relate to that. Something abstract. So I knew I could wait the audience out somewhere in here because I knew I was going to get fireworks there. And I knew I could come down and sort of pause here and I was going to build up here and get fireworks here with the mother. And come back and I knew somehow I was connecting this. So I could see it quickly. And I think if for me, I mean, to, when ideas are coded in mathematics and geometry or numbers, I can see the thing very quick. Or I just say, what is King Lear? I did King Lear once. What is King Lear? I have to make it simple. Make it simple first and then to be of a, Well, what is it? It's a man who divides his kingdom. He's in a man-made environment. He says, I shall go mad. He goes into a heath and he dies. Or something. You know, it's a man-made environment and a natural environment. I shall go mad. It's the center line. That's interpretation, isn't it? It's it. It's a kind of interpretation, but it's looking at yeah. what is there. I mean, the guy is... That's what I've been given. But I try to tell myself very something simple first. So I know that I've got these two halves in the center line. Parsifal. We talked about Parsifal. The center bar line is Kundry kissing Parsifal. That's I know that I've got all this before and I've got all this after, but that's the center, like Shakespeare. center lines. So that's what I mean by simple. It's not... Yes, it is a kind of interpretation.
1: Thank you. Mm -hmm. You you had a question here?
2: What is... um, How do you see your work, abstract quality, what is the connection between very concrete things um, things that I'm very concerned about for example compassion or
1: community do you draw a line when you think about
2: compassion community
1: compassion, community very to me very concrete things do you think about working or living because you mentioned at the very beginning making art and living do you make that connection
2: I think so and how do you How do you begin to define or describe or talk or something? I think that Martha Graham said the body doesn't lie. And I very much trust my instincts. That Somehow I think that's a kind of truth there. Should I do this or should I do that? You say, oh, I should do this. Or you say, should I do this or should I do that? And you say, well, this is the right thing for me to do the wrong thing. <laughs> so sometimes it's good to, to do the wrong thing, to contradict yourself. But Socrates said that the baby is born knowing everything, that the learning process is the uncovering of the knowledge that is within us. And I very much trust my, my instincts. Um, and uh, I start with the form, the structure, and then it's something. I mean, I had this, this form of Hamlet and its, but I knew that somewhere, in the very beginning, there was this letter that Hamlet wrote to Ophelia. And I knew that for me, it <laughs> was the most beautiful thing in the play. I love the line, "Oh dear, Ophelia." This sound is so beautiful. There's two O's. And I knew that I, I wanted to put it towards the end because I had a special feeling for it, the, the letter. Um, but I had a, a structure, the architecture, and I could place things. And I had my own feeling about it. It was very private, very personal.
1: Why don't we have one more question, and that'll be it. <laughs> Yeah, first I just want to say that I'm really glad that you're doing a lot more teaching
2: because this is a constant struggle. Um, This place that that I'm feeling in American theater is stuck in this kind of um,
0: realistic, interpretive place, and not understanding theater as a visual, three-dimensional event, and that that event is a
1: live, um, living entity. yeah, there still seems to be a struggle of vocabulary and, and communication. With
0: um, the question that was just asked about community and passion, it doesn't seem to quite work with the, the, the vocabulary that's being discussed here. And trying to bridge that that gap, and I'm curious about how do you see that happening? Do you
2: know, the, the festivals are great, but is it just bringing in more Europeans that we're going to educate Americans, or? How well, the situation is not so much better in Europe. I mean. I Maybe the people are better informed, but uh, <clears throat> I, I think we just have to stay open. I mean, I couldn't be doing the work I'm doing if I hadn't traveled. You know, if I didn't have I spent time in Brazil. I was in the Middle East. I was in the Far East. I've been in China. I've been in. Indonesia I've been in Japan I've been in whatever all throughout Europe and um, I go to museums I go to I don't know what you read and that's influence the work it's a stay open I think there's just the world is a library and uh, trust yourself and, uh, trust your I, I believe as I said that as Graham said the body doesn't lie Socrates said the knowledge is within us and they tell us now some people believe and some people don't that the baby is born dreaming that his eyes are moving rapidly what's the baby dreaming?
0: <laughs> thanks a lot Thank you very much. I'd like to thank Bob and John for joining us, and I'd like to thank all of you for coming this afternoon. Thank you very much. Again, this is Hal Prince, and thank you for listening to Masters of the Stage. This program was made possible by support from the Society of Stage Directors and Choreographers, the National Labor Union celebrating five decades representing the needs and aspirations of its members online at ssdc.org. The online series is presented in collaboration with the American Theatre Wing, dedicated to illuminating how theatre is made through the words of the people who make theatre. Visit them online at americantheaterwing.org.